I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have another triple feature edition of the program. Later on in the show, you'll be hearing from the University of Ottawa's Paul Robinson of the Irrationality blog on Russia and NATO. In our second segment, we'll be speaking with author Sally Denton about her 2012 book, The Plots Against the President, FDR, A Nation in Crisis, and The Rise of the American Right, which deals with an under-discussed story in history known as the business plot, which involved powerful Wall Street interests planning a coup against President Roosevelt. But first, former New York Times reporter Barry Meyer joins us to chat about the now infamous saga of the Still Dossier, as detailed in his book, Spooked, The Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and the Rise of Private Spies. For those that may not recall, the Still Dossier was the origin point for a salacious tale claiming that Russians had blackmailed Donald Trump using an alleged tape involving golden showers and prostitutes. Said dossier has since been discredited, so the question is, how were so many duped by it? And what other issues does it raise about corporate investigative firms? All that and more will be discussed in the conversation to follow with Barry Meyer, former New York Times reporter and author of Spooked, The Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and The Rise of Private Spies. But before we get to that, a word from one of our sponsors. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. Shadows, the void are all painted over. Magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a four spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was 
in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero, which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen. The Zen of the Other. The audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. Welcome to Parallax Views, uh, a journalist whose work I very much respect, Barry Meyer, author of the book Spooked, The Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and the Rise of Private Spies. How are you doing today? Very good. Very good. How are you? Very good. Very good. And as I was saying off air, uh, you're the same Barry Meyer that helped break a lot of the uh, Nexium stories. So Indeed. that's also something I've covered. <laughs> and this book is really fascinating to me because there's a lot of characters outside of the Trump dossier story that come up in it from uh, people like, uh, well, I, I guess he figures into the Trump dossier story, but uh, I, I saw Paul Singer's name come up, Cruel Security comes up. So there's a really wide web here. And I guess the place we should start is it's about private spies. And I think people think, oh, you mean like private investigators, uh, the, the type of people that, uh, you know, uh, get hired by a wife to see if the husband's cheating. That's not exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about a hidden billion dollar industry. Uh, let's talk about how that started, how it came to this. Right. So when we think of, of private investigators, you know, you kind of think about uh, the guy that, you know, is hired by a, a, a husband or wife to find their cheating spouse and hangs out in an alley outside a cheap motel in a raincoat or maybe someone who looks for a missing runaway kid or what have you. But back in about the 1970s or so, and you mentioned Jules Kroll, um, basically came up with this concept that, you know, there are business people that needed investigative work to be done, much in the same way that they needed legal work to be, gone, to be done. And this kind of coincided with the, what was going on at, at the time on Wall Street, when there was a lot of corporate raiders and takeovers and what was called green mail, where the, these guys like T. Boone Pickens would, uh, try to shake down companies by threatening to take them over. So Curl um, came up with the idea of hiring, uh, using corporate investigators to dig up dirt and information on behalf of companies that were being uh, targeted by these corporate raiders or alternatively um, do background research on companies that these raiders or other people wanted to acquire or take over. 
And so, you know, he had to recruit like people that had business expertise and legal expertise and maybe accounting expertise, as well as people who were just good investigators and smart investigators. And uh, so this kind of modern day corporate investigations industry was born that was kind of, you know, modeled around the legal industry. People wore nice suits, they had beautiful corporate offices, and they charged their clients the type of money that lawyers charge their clients. Yeah, it's interesting that Kroll came up because I've actually interviewed someone who I found out had worked for Kroll at one point. Uh, a former FBI agent. And then I've also always been interested in the story of uh, John O'Neill, uh, who was a very right. big name in the FBI. He ended up working for Kroll, for I think for Kroll Security. So there, there is like a revolving door between, uh, you know, very people in the so. intelligence world and uh, these private firms. Right. I mean, the way, I mean, one of the ways I got into this, doing this book is that my previous book, which was called Missing Man, uh, was about a former FBI agent named Robert Levinson, who disappeared in Iran in the mid-2000s while he was working as a contractor for the CIA. And in between the time that Bob left the FBI and started doing contract work for the CIA, he, like many former FBI agents, worked as a private investigator. So he worked for a number of these corporate investigative firms, and then eventually struck out on his own. So this kind of revolving door where um, former law enforcement officials, former prosecutors decide to become, uh, go work for private investigative firms, corporate investigative firms is very commonplace. And you know, one of the things that I noted in the book is that you know, there's a whole new group of employees over the past decade that have also entered the industry, which who are former journalists like myself, in part because either uh, newspapers have been contracting, you know, their staffs, people have been getting laid off, or reporters have decided they really just decide, you know, I need to make more money here. I've got three kids. I can't. Uh, I can't do this on a reporter's salary. So what are my options? Well, one of them is to become a corporate investigator. So then I really want to get into this story of uh, the Trump dossier or the, the still dossier. And uh, for people that have been living under a rock, maybe just give a, a brief sketch of what uh, the still dossier was and who Christopher still is. Okay, sure. Good. So uh, just to take it, back a notch, um, I'll use the term uh, oppo. There's a term oppo or political opposition work. And it's been, you know, throughout recent decades, it's commonplace for one candidate to hire people to dig up information or dirt on their opponent. Say, so let's go back, if Barry, Barry Meyer is running for office, has he had DUIs? Has he been involved in messy, divorces, the, you know, is he uh, a slouch when it comes to paying his bills, so on and so forth. And we'll would people like that. Roger Stone fit into that sort of mold? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and then we'll use that against him uh, during the campaign. And 
ever since the late 19, the early 1990s, late 1980s, increasingly corporate investigators have been hired to do this work. They worked for on behalf of Bill Clinton's campaign. They worked against the Bushes. Uh, it just happened every major election cycle. So we come now to the 2016 presidential ca campaign, even before that, we come to the primaries, the Republican primaries, and it's not clear who the candidates are going to be. Uh, there's, you know, Marco Rubio, there's Ted Cruz, and then suddenly this guy, Donald Trump, decides to throw his hat in the ring. And initially in uh, 2015, as the prim Republican primaries are unfolding, um, a investigative firm in Washington, D.C. called Fusion GPS, which is run by two former Wall Street Journal reporters, is hired by the Washington Free Beacon Foundation, a website in Washington that receives most of its funding from Paul Singer, the hedge fund operator that you mentioned. He's uh, known as sort of a, a vulture he's been called fund. a vulture capitalist. Vulture, vulture capitalist. Run, uh, uh, is a major financial supporter and he's a major Republican donor. And uh, Singer's favored candidate to win the Republican nomination is Marco Rubio. So uh, Fusion is asked by the Washington Free Beacon Foundation to start investigating Donald Trump which they start doing and they start digging into, you know, Trump's got, you know, like, and he's like probably the easiest person in the world to investigate because he's got decades of litigation against him. Lots of people hate him. He's done horrible things. Uh, he's had any number of marriages and, and relationships. So he's like, you know, like, a, you know, field day for both journalists and an investigator. Uh, then we come, so this is going along, they're doing this work on behalf of Washington Free Beacon Foundation, and lo and behold, in the spring of 2016, it's now clear that Trump is going to win the Republican nomination. So everyone's got to get, get on the Trump train, the Washington Free Beacon Association, Foundation says we can't fund this research anymore. And the two people who head Fusion, uh, Glenn Simpson and Peter Fritz, the former Wall Street Journal reporters, approach the Democratic National Committee and say to it, hey, we've been working on Donald Trump. Uh, we'd like to continue that work. We know that Hillary has taken a very strong stand, Hillary Clinton's, taken a very strong stand against Vladimir Putin. And, you know, Trump, Trump's gone to Russia. He may have connections in Russia. Let's dig into his connections in Russia. I, I was going to say, I think that's a really key point because I think it shows, you know, Fusion GPS, it's, it's ultimately, they're, they're a business. They're looking for yes, they're, clients they're first and foremost. Yeah, they, they really don't, you know, they have no, you know, I think at the end of the day, they would prefer to have seen Hillary Clinton elected than Donald Trump. That probably goes through, is true for many people. 
but this is business for them, right? They're not, they're not, they're not uh, wedded to either side. It's which side's going to pay them, uh, which is sort of, I found speaks, I mean, speaks totally to kind of the amoral nature of this business, right? It's like, you know, they said, they supposedly set up their shop that they were only going to be working for, you know, good guys. But as they show in the book, they end up working for some awful people like, you know, um, the head for Theranos and for this Russian owned real estate firm and all kinds of characters. But getting back to the dossier, uh, they, uh, around 2010, when Glenn Simpson had started Fusion GPS, he had met Christopher Steele, who at that time was starting his own private investigations firm in London. Steele was a former uh, operative with MI6, uh, Britain's equivalent of the CIA. And just like here in the, in the US, people who once worked for British intelligence, be it, be it MI6, or MI5, which is sort of the equivalent of the, you know, domestic intelligence, counterintelligence in England, or for who were once cops in London, many of them also drift into the private investigations industry. So he knew Steele, he knew Steele had worked for a time, served uh, in, in Russia for MI6, though that was many years earlier. And he says to him, do you think, you know, I want to hire you. You use your contacts to reach into Russia and dig up whatever you can find out, out about Trump and his ties to the Russians or people within Trump's orbit and their ties to the Russians. And that was the seed for the Steele dossier because uh, over in between 2000, uh, June of 2016, when Steele was hired and the fall of that year, uh, an operative working for Steele um, was gathering information and Steele wrote up about 17 or 18 memos on specific issues related to Trump and his retinue uh, that became known as the Steele dossier. And, and, that and still is doing this for Fusion GPS, but his yes, company he was is being paid by Fusion GPS, which was being paid in turn by the Democratic National Committee. Right. And his company, firm. though, is Orbis Business Intelligence. That's correct. That okay. is correct. That's Steele's company, Orbis. So there was this daisy chain of payments from the Clinton campaign to Perkins Coie, the law firm that represented the Clinton campaign to Fusion GPS to Steele. And, uh, and so these reports, which kind of people were hearing about during the campaign, and in fact, uh, Simpson set up meetings between Steele and Washington, in Washington, D.C., between Steele and reporters with the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, uh, CNN, and other publications. Uh, I mean, say ABC News and other other news outlets, uh, 
where Steele was like briefing them on what's in this re these reports and trying to get them to write stories about this information prior to the election when it had its maximum value, obviously. But none of the news organizations could confirm what he was finding or what he was being told. Uh, there were only two brief stories that related to it, one in Yahoo News and the other in Mother Jones. And it wasn't until after the election, in January of 2017, when BuzzFeed decided to post the Steele memos verbatim on its website that this whole issue exploded, right? And there were congressional hearings, it became a media obsession, and this thing kind of rolled on for, th for the next three years. And I was gonna say, this is where we get into this, uh, this infamous uh, story of the, the P-tape and, and compromise. Yeah, so all this stuff, yeah, this, the allegations of the P-tape, allegations that uh, Trump was an instrument of the Kremlin, that some of his staffers had, that Michael Cohn, Trump's personal lawyer, had secretly met with Russian operatives in Prague to plot strategy during the campaign, that another guy, uh, Carter Page, had been offered a big stake in Russia's national oil company to um, get the US you know, uh, diplomacy more favorable to Russia and drop, drop sanctions. It's like where this, you know, this raft of, of allegations emerged and, and were then fueled um, really for three years. Um, by, you know, particularly in, 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 in a lot of news outlets, you know, most of most major news outlets were digging into this, carrying stories about this. There was a lot of mow mowing about this in Congress. And, uh, you know, I, in the book, I kind of, I tell the story of this and how, how it unfolded and why people believe this. Um, and then also the story of how it all began to unravel. So let's get into that briefly, because I, I know we have limited time here, but uh, how does it unravel and why were so many journalists duped by this? Well, I, you know, I think it was people want, I mean, look, Trump is an awful person. I mean, you know, that there's no, no one questions that. And, you know, he has proven how awful he is. He proved it before he became president. He practiced being awful while he was president. And he's doubled down on it afterwards by, you know, challenging the very nature of our democracy, which in my view is about as despicable as you can get. But even before the 2016 campaign, people here in New York where I am thought that Trump was a low life, that he you know, cheated people, lied about things, would do anything to, to get uh, his way. And so it wasn't that hard for many reporters to conceive of a, the possibility that in order to win an election, Trump would make a deal with the devil, in this case, Vladimir Putin. And you know, it's very possible he would have had he been given that opportunity. 
right? So there was, you know, Trump was a type of character that you could believe anything about. And many journalists wanted to believe that he couldn't have won the election fairly. Like someone as horrible as Trump couldn't beat Hillary Clinton fair and square. Now they were forgetting the fact that Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate that after eight years of democratic uh, leadership, there were a lot of people throughout the country who were extremely pissed off, who had gotten screwed over during the um, mortgage crisis and lost their homes, who had lost their jobs. And there was incredible dissatisfaction within certainly Rust Belt America and no one like in, you know, there were not reporters out there kind of beating the bushes who were, who were like understanding this. So when Hillary lost, uh, the immediate assumption was that she had lost because Russians had a fear interfered in the election on behalf of Donald Trump and Donald Trump had played with them before the election. So there was this natural narrative that was formed and the allegations in the dossier kind of flowed into that narrative. Oh, well, yeah, we thought something weird was going on. And now here, here's the evidence that showed it. So, you know, you know God bless. I was going to say, yeah. and also, uh, you know, with, with the P-tape stuff and whatnot, I mean, it's, it's pretty salacious stuff. So it's also- uh... Yes, it's salacious, it's criminal. You know, there's secretive meetings going on. I mean, everybody knew that that uh, Michael Cohn, Trump's lawyer, was a complete liar and a thug. And yeah, so why shouldn't he be going to Prague to meet with like Putin's people and plot strategy? And yeah, if he denied doing it, well, we're not going to believe him because look at everything else he's lied about. So basically, you know, you have, how do you take the word of someone who you know, who might be telling the truth about something when you know they've really lied about a lot of other things. So, you know, it was like, well, we're not going to believe him because he lied. But, you know, this all began to fall apart. I mean, it took three years. That's the incredible thing to me for this to fall apart because no one really was scrutinizing, well, who the hell are the people involved in putting together this dossier? Who is Fusion GPS? Who is Christopher Steele? Why was he able to find out information in the space of two to three months that the CIA or the FBI or MI6 or any of the world's intelligence agencies had never found out. Why was he claiming to have like connect his, his informant and you know, having deep connections inside the Kremlin when anyone who knows anything about the intelligence business knows that it takes a lifetime to develop those types of connections. And if you, if you have one, you're not going to expose that person because they're providing you with invaluable information. 
So there was just this rush to embrace fusion, embrace steel, and embrace the dossier, and embrace this narrative because it played into uh, what we all thought was likely and possible. So just two more really brief questions. The first one, you actually work with someone who is also a, a private spy in the book to, to search for Christopher Still. So I guess the question is, like, you're, you're not against necessarily working with uh, private detectives or private spies, but what are the problems that arise? Right, right. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, as a journalist, and I still consider myself a journalist, you know, if someone wants to give me information, uh, I'm not that concerned who it comes from. It could come from, you know, a whistleblower. It could come from a corporate investigator. It could come from a criminal. It could come from any number of people. But it's my job as a journalist to try to determine whether that investigation, that information is true before I would ever use it. But most importantly, I think what this whole episode has shown me and, and I think should be showing other journalists and the news media as a whole is that we have to be clear and forthright with the reader about where our information is coming from. Well, yeah, because I, I think a, a case like this can actually be used against the press, right? It was. It was. That's the travesty of this. I mean, I write about it in the book that, you know, like the, you know, the, the press is, you know, paid and is continuing to pay a price for its missteps in this case, because, you know, throughout his administration, Trump kind of used the dossier as, as a cudgel to beat the press when people were investigating really bad stuff that Trump was doing. And it's still being used. You know, like when people talk about the campaign lies about that, he'll bring up, oh, the Russia, these are the same people that were promoting the Russia hoax. So well, I it, think it also not not to interrupt you, but it also took attention away from like very serious issues like uh, Tom Barrick, uh, who was working for the UAE. Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it distracted people. It obsessed people. And it came back to bite journalists in the ass. And to me, that it came back to bite people in the ass because journalists were never forthright with the public about where this information was coming from, who was supplying it to them, and how, and, and, and that they had scrutinized this information with the same level of, and the people providing it with the same level of scrutiny that they usually give, you know, what they refer to or what they think of as the bad guys, right? These were good guys. So we're not gonna look with, at them as hard as the people we think of as the bad guys. And I think really as a journalist, you can't make that distinction that you've got to scrutinize everybody uh, using the same measure, using the same approach. And once you start to think about someone like a corporate investigator or private spy as your friend who's supplying you information because they're your friend, you're screwed at that point. And 
And, you know, that, that we as journalists need to redefine how we engage with these investigators, with these corporate investigators and private spies. It's not wrong that we do it, but what is wrong is when we hide that relationship from the public and that we have to be transparent. We have to be transparent about where this information is coming from, how we acquired it, and how we satisfied ourselves that it's accurate. Well, I, I want to thank you for coming on, uh, Parallax Usberry. If you could, in closing, uh, you know, for people that don't understand the, the gravity of this rise of private spice, what's maybe one story from the book that you think really highlights uh, maybe the unseemly side of all this? Well, I guess the thing was, you know, like, well, what struck me, uh, what, what brought me and, you know, what led me to decide to do this book was in early uh, 2018, right after I had uh, retired from the Times, New York Times, where I spent three decades as a reporter. And, and right around that time, there were three uh, big news stories that were happening. One was the Steele dossier, which we've spoken about. The other was the Harvey Weinstein case. And the third one was the case involving Theranos, you know, this, this, this company in California, the Elizabeth Holmes company that was, you know, marketing this fraudulent medical technology. And in all of these cases, the thing that connected them with the fact that private spies were working for all these parties to dig up dirt on their adversaries and their critics and then trying to funnel it into the public view to either affect how we as the public or the legal system who or whomever was perceiving that. And I just realized at that point that, you know, that there's this huge hidden industry that affects what we see in the media, what we learn about through legal proceedings, and that, you know, could may end up often targeting us if we happen to walk into the cross, crosshairs of one of these cases. And I, I know you mentioned uh, very briefly here, I just want to say, I know you mentioned that uh, there, there's a connection between Fusion G, G, uh, GPS and um, even a Russian oligarch by the name of Oleg Deripaska. And, you know, I think about like, you know, who else could be using uh, these sort of private spies, you know, uh, uh, they're used by by Russian oligarchs. Uh, they're, they, I mean, they work on behalf of Russian oligarchs. You know, my first book was about the was about OxyContin uh, and and the drug company Purdue Pharma. And when I was reporting that back in the early two thousands, they had hired, I believe, Kroll um, to investigate people looking into them, people like me. So they they investigate journalists. They work on behalf of Hollywood moguls uh, like Harvey Weinstein. They work on behalf of political parties. 
they work on behalf of the rich and powerful. They're mercenaries. Yes, and they are one of the (laughs) weapons that the rich and powerful use to tilt the scales and often the scales of justice in their favor. Well, thank you again, Barry Meyer. I appreciate you going a a minute or two over. Thank you so much. All right, cheers. And thank you for having me on. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Barry Meyer, and I would highly recommend picking up his book, Spooked, The Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and The Rise of Private Spies. Next up, a short but sweet conversation with author Sally Denton about the under-discussed story of the business plot, a plan by powerful Wall Street interests to overthrow President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's a story that involves one of my personal heroes, the anti-war maverick marine, General Smedley Butler. So with that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Sally Denton, author of The Plots Against the President, FDR, A Nation in Crisis, and the Rise of the American Right. But first, a word from our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Hey, Parallax News listeners, before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Laud it for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel, or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome to Parallax Views, Sally Denton, author of a number of books, including The Plots Against the President, which covers the 
1930s coup attempt against FDR. Uh, and you've also written an article, an opinion piece in The Guardian from January 11th, 2022, entitled, Why is so little known about the 1930s coup attempt against FDR? How are you doing today, Sally? Good. Thanks for having me. So I know we're limited on time. So if you could, maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about uh, this coup attempt against FDR and maybe some of the background on it. What was happening at the time in the country that led up to this attempt? Well, uh, it was a very precarious moment, 1933. It was actually kind of uh, just post um, uh, FDR's inauguration in March of 1933. And uh, the uh, the book, I actually published the book, The Plots Against the President, in um, uh uh, 2012, and it got very little attention at the time, and which is one of the reasons I wrote the op-ed um, a couple of weeks ago for The Guardian, because it just seemed there, that there were so many uh, similarities to what was going on in America today. And um, actually, I thought the same thing at the time in 2012 when I wrote the book, but um, uh, most other, I, apparently the audience didn't find the same parallels to be as alarming as I did. It was you know, during the uh, Obama administration, and I could see um, the same impulses in the country uh, leading up to, um, you know, uh, the alarmist um, uh, concerns about uh, FDR's New Deal policies and uh, playing out again, um, you know, 80 years later in the Obama administration and, and arguably other times too, but um, in, in 1933, the country, there were um, a staggering number of people unemployed. Uh, there had been the Great Depression. There was the run on the banks. There were no safety nets like we have today, no um, unemployment insurance or welfare. I, I think, um, not to interrupt you, but I think just to give an idea, in 1932, I think, is when uh, the bonus marches were happening with uh you know, soldiers demanding pay for their services in the military. So there's all kinds of. Uh... Yeah, the bonus marchers, the, the veterans were uh, these were soldiers from World War Two who had not received the bonuses. And so there were um, there were hundreds of thousands of veterans who were also destitute. And uh, um, and Herbert Hoover was not honoring President Hoover was not honoring those. So there was a lot of tension. Um, unrest and uh, and uh, leading up to that at the same time there was some there was quite a bit of speculation that maybe the United States would be better off with a fascist um, authoritarian leader than a democratic leader that that might be the solution and then this in was the rise of uh, like America first Charles Lindbergh etc cetera, etc cetera. right and the Nazism and and uh, fascism in Europe, was uh, uh, gaining a stronghold, not just there, but there were a lot of people, as you said, like Lindbergh, and who were flirting with that as a possibility for a new direction for America. And then instead, they got FDR, who I think initially they thought, you know, because he came from the um, the patrician class, they thought that uh, the the moneyed interest in the United States thought that he would be controllable and malleable, and in turn. Uh, it, 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 he turned out not to be that, and in fact, uh, was a direct threat to them with the New Deal that he was proposing for um, uh, basically, you know, trying to create a middle class, a, a more equitable distribution of wealth. And so the, the forces aligned against him were pretty significant. 
and uh, and gaining in power during that time. And you're right, it's the, uh, you know, the, the America firsters. I mean, anything, you know, there's not much new under the sun and anything that, uh, you know, the the uh, rhetoric that you heard under the the uh, Trump administration paralleled that almost. Yeah, to well, there were people like uh, Father Charles Coughlin and all these other characters like really attacking FDR at the time, too. Yeah, from the right and from the left. I mean, uh, Huey Long was the, the populist governor of Louisiana, and he was attacking Roosevelt, thinking he wasn't going far enough to the left. And then there was Father Coughlin, the uh, uh, Catholic um, priest who had a huge following and was kind of rabidly anti-communist, anti-immigrant, um, who thought that Roosevelt was going too far to the left. And then you had the Wall Street um, uh, factions that were concerned that Roosevelt was taking America off the gold standard and um, uh, and and basically, you know, letting too many um you know, poor and brown and black people uh, to participate in democracy. Who would some of those interests have been? Like, like, can we name some names here or uh, some interests that would have been involved? Well, J.P. Morgan was one of the biggest ones. And um, it was the Singer Sewing Machine, machine Faction, uh, the DuPonts. Um, it was kind of a, um, a litany of some of the uh, wealthiest uh, companies in America at the time, which is what made it so um, kind of remarkable when those interests who came up with a, a plan, a plot to overthrow FDR and what they believed would be a peaceful transfer of power or a, tre a peaceful coup, they, they seemed to think that they'd be able, that he felt like he was in over his head and they would be able to come in and get him to peacefully remove himself and become a ribbon cutter and let the people um, who controlled the country financially, um, which, you know, which is when the moniker of the traitor to his class came in, when he, they realized that, you know, he was very much a passionate um, believer in the New Deal and the uh, uh, distribution, redistribution of wealth and power in the country. But the fact that they then um, you know, went to a, a general, um, Smedley Butler. One and, of my heroes. <laughs> yeah, that's what you said. <laughs> it's so so hard to find people who, uh, you know, know who he is. Um, but he was uh, the Maver Maverick Marine. He was the general, the um, you know, the soldier soldier. They absolutely adored him. And he had been um, another of many kind of quirks and ironies of Smedley Butler was that he was a Quaker, you know, from a, a, a famously uh, pacifist uh, religious uh, belief and, and religious family, but went on to become one of the most decorated soldiers in, in the 20th century and had been in theaters abroad and especially in um, Central and South America, where he later came back and said that he was, you know, basically making the world safe for uh, United Fruit, that in fact, he had been a racketeer for capitalism, he called himself. War is a racket. War is a racket. And so the fact that it seems kind of ill-fated that they, that the, the, the plotters, uh, the kind of Wall Street uh, plotters of this would consider him as a, a leader uh, when, I mean, on the one hand, he had complete uh, devotion by the, um, the soldiers. 
And part of the plot included these half a million dollar veteran, half a million uh, veterans to march on Washington uh, for the transition of um, of power away from FDR. Uh, And they knew that he could, uh, that the veterans adored him and and would follow him. They were devoted followers of his. Uh, What they obviously didn't count on was that he was seriously passionate about having been um, uh, you know, a racketeer for capitalism. And so when they uh, came to him with the plot, he turned it over to, he went to J, J. Edgar Hoover, the new, um, brand new um, head of what would become the FBI. And, and J. Edgar Hoover mm-hmm. uh, took it to FDR and the plot was thwarted. And real quick, I, I guess the person that came to uh, Butler was an American Legion member by the name of uh, Gerald McGuire. Uh, and supposedly this was backed by uh, a group called the American Liberty League. I know we can't get into all of that. Right. What I do want to get into, uh, just for my listeners, when I was growing up in school, if you ever heard about the business plot or the Wall Street putsch, uh, which you know I don't think a lot of people even learned about it in school, but if you did, uh, there was always this sort of hand-waving saying, uh, oh, it was a big hoax, and you know you couldn't trust Butler's testimony because he was so old at the time. Uh, but you, you take a different tack to this, and I think it's important because I think this was a real plot, and uh, everyone seems to agree that it was a real plot. The question seems to be how close it was to execution. I was wondering if you could address all of that. Yeah, well, I mean that's kind of uh, uh, reminiscent today to today as well. You know, we just uh, dismiss it as a hoax. And and um, uh, but there was it was a real plot. There was real congressional t- testimony. There was a congressional investigation. Uh, Butler later said that he, none of the big shots that he named. I mean, he named high level um, industrialists and and uh, businessmen in the United States, and none of them. Uh, were called to testify and none of them were named in the report. Um, now, of course, it's easy to, and I researched this, um, you know, and in Washington at the Library of Congress and the National Archives and went through the congressional, I've read all of the uh, committee hearings, have seen all of the newspaper accounts at the time. Uh, it was clearly a serious um, putsch and uh, the only thing the the only uh, question that still um, I think historically is still being debated is how far it went and why it didn't go further, which made it easy to kind of dismiss it as a hoax. And I think that it was um, from the from the research that I did, which was um, two or three years, um, I I came short of being able to, you know, I had no smoking gun about who stopped it. I later learned, well, it's clear that FDR stopped it. The question was, why and what did he get in exchange for it? And I think that the I think that the most recent evidence and other scholars that have been looking at it it seems clear that what he got in ex- what Roosevelt got in exchange for um, stopping the prosecution, and these guys could have been, you know, tried for treason. Um, that what he got in exchange for that was kind of a uh, uh, hands off for him to go forward and get the shove the New Deal through, and um, arguably, as um, you know, arguably as I quote Sidney Blumenthal in my piece in The Guardian, you know, he shouldn't have done, you know, maybe he should have uh, promised them that he wasn't going to prosecute it 
them and then gotten the deal, new deal through and then welched on that agreement and, and prosecuted them. Maybe had Roosevelt done that, the Liberty League and America First and all of these militia movements that were involved in it um, would not have uh, gained the traction to go forward for the next 75, 85, now 90 years. Real quick, the last question, and then I, I promise to let you go because I know we're limited here. Uh, you mentioned the militias. Who were some of these uh, militia style groups that were involved in this whole coup attempt. I know uh, you mentioned the silver shirts. Maybe you could just briefly uh, explain yeah, that. I have, a, I have a chapter called, you know, a, a, rain, a, a rainbow of colored shirts. They were, were cropping up everywhere and they were well armed. Uh, Remington Arms was the company that was um, that McGuire had said was behind. Uh, they were going to be providing the, the weapons for the peaceful takeover of the, of the presidency. Uh, but all of these militias were cropping up uh, seemingly random, but they all had a version of the same thing. They were, you know, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, um, racist, um, uh, anti-communist, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they all had their, you know, they were patterned after the brown shirts and the black shirts of, of Mussolini and, and Hitler. Um, they all had their insignias and and waved their flags and not unlike, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure the Oath Keepers and three percenters would, you know, say that they're more sophisticated, but um, they're really not. It's there's a direct line that could be drawn to all of them. And they cropped up, as you said, in various places. There were Christian evangelicals and they were, um, you know, KKK and they were the Texas Rangers and. Um, so while they were all different and seemingly non-connected, and of course, then there wasn't the internet to do, you know, a clarion call to bring them all together from all these various regions and states. But um, it's a fascinating, um, it's a fascinating and, and uh, cautionary tale, I think. Well, Sally Denton, I want to thank you for coming on uh, Parallax Views. Let me let my listeners know how they can get the book and what you hope they get out of uh, us telling this story. Um, you know, well, the book is on Amazon, obviously, uh, the plots against the president and uh, FDR and the rise of the American right. Um, and uh, I think, uh, strangely, it's kind of strangely comforting in a way that um, that you can see that we've been on the brink before and up against the same authoritarian dictatorial impulses and overcame them. So there's a little bit of Pollyanna-ish in there for me that that's what I hope people will see. And the second thing is that the necessity to not let it be forgotten and um, not let everybody get away with uh, trying to, uh, you know, with the real uh, uh, takeover of the U.S. government. And, and I would assume there, there's a continuity maybe between the rise of the right then and the rise of the right now. Absolutely. And if you do my uh, the book I did just before that was on a, a California uh, congresswoman named Helen Gahagan Douglas, who was also, um, you know, uh, fighting the right wing. Nixon named her the pink lady. And there's a direct link from the 30s to the 50s and the John Birch Society and the 50s to the 70s to the 90s to the 2000s. So, um yeah, if anybody's looking at um, drawing connections, they're um, they're pretty close to the surface. Thank you again, Sally Denton. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that does it for our brief conversation with Sally Denton, author of The Plots Against the President, FDR, 
A Nation in Crisis and the Rise of the American Right. Check that book out. We'll probably be doing another show on the business plot in the near future. I won't say anything more than that because not everything has been completely finalized yet, but I've got something up my sleeve. Next up, our final segment for this edition of the program, the University of Ottawa's Paul Robinson, a Russia scholar who runs the Irrationality blog and has written a number of books on the subject of Russia and its history, joins me to discuss Russia and NATO. What exactly is Moscow's interpretation of rhetoric coming out of D.C.? This is going to be the longest segment on this edition of the show, so I want to get right to it. Again, the University of Ottawa's Paul Robinson joins us to discuss Russia and NATO. Welcome to Parallax Views. Paul Robinson, a professor at the University of Ottawa and a scholar on a lot of matters related to Russia and its history. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Uh, glad to be on your podcast. So I initially wanted to have you on the show because I saw that you had uh, a piece up at the Irrationality blog about why Russia fears NATO. Uh, but before we get into that specific piece, uh, what is your general understanding of what is happening right now with Russia, the Ukraine, and the question of NATO, uh, just for my listeners who are trying to make sense of the situation? Personally, I, I think that the talk of Russia, you know, launching some invasion of Ukraine out of the blue is, is very much exaggerated. And, and I, I think that this talk has been generated uh, in Western capitals, particularly uh, in uh, Washington and London. Certainly, uh, they're not talking about it in Moscow. Um, there are indications that uh, the Russians are, you know, somewhat concerned both about security guarantees from NATO in general, but also about the possibility of the Ukrainian government launching an attack to try and regain its lost territories in Donbass. And uh, some of this, you know, troop movements and so on, um, which we've been told about may be designed uh, to uh, deter the Ukrainians from doing this, because the Russians have made it very, very clear that should Ukraine try and uh, resolve its problem in Donbass by force, it, it would respond um, very violently. Uh, so uh, to some degree, I think you could possibly look at this as a means of either deterring Ukraine or being in a position to do something about it should, should Ukraine decide to, to act uh, violently against, against Donbass. But that, that does not the same as saying that, you know, Russia's just we're going to wake up one morning and find that Russia has, you know, launched a massive invasion of Ukraine, because that seems to me uh, extremely unlikely. Why do you think there has been this sort of media blitz indicating that, uh, oh, Russia is going to invade at any moment? Because I I'm not so sure about that. And I, I find it very confusing that people are really, uh, in my view, jumping the gun on it. And it reminds me a lot of people who really jumped the gun on uh, this whole Havana syndrome uh, controversy, which I, I think you wrote about in a recent blog, you know, that too turned out to not be what people thought it was. So 
What is going on with the media in relation to its coverage of this? Well, um, I don't like to be too cynical, but the, the fact is that a uh, crisis sells, if you would, I mean, if you know what I mean. It, it's, uh, you know, Russia fails to invade Ukraine is, isn't exactly an exciting headline, right? Whereas, uh, you know, tensions rise on Russian-Ukrainian border is a headline you can you could sell time after time. So there is a certain sort of dynamic in, in, um, in pushing that. But the second reason is that there are, uh, I think, elements uh, within what you might call sort of military industrial complex, uh, which have a certain interest in um, tensions with Russia and also just have a naturally suspicious attitude towards Russia. I mean, so it was a good degree of, of um, hostility towards Russia and, and either fear or, or suspicion of it. Um, so they, they tend to uh, interpret information uh, coming out of that part of the world in the most negative light. Um, and then governments, um, you know, feed out this information to the press, which then simply repeats it rather uncritically. Do you think a lot of that is just uh, a hangover in some ways of the sort of ideas and, and prejudices that come out of the Cold War? I think that's in, in part uh, the case. Uh, there are some more um, modern dynamics behind it. I mean, let's, let's be honest, of course, you know, the Russians are not angels and they have done things which uh, might well give rise to uh, some degree of uh, suspicion. So, um, you know, this, this is not a, a one-way thing. There is, there is uh, uh, it, it, it takes two to tango, as it were. Um, so, I mean, there are some legitimate reasons for, for, for concern. Um, uh, but at the same time, of course, the, the, the Russian threat has also actually played sort of a useful role um, in delegitimizing domestic enemies. For instance, uh, this uh, was very clear across in the, in the Trump era, where with Russiagate, uh, you know, Russia was used essentially to try and uh, delegitimize de um, Donald Trump's presidency. And this is this had quite a serious hangover because after, when you've been demonizing a country for four years in the way the, the Democrats did under Trump, uh, it's very hard to then sort of jettison uh, the hostile attitudes which have been created as a result of that. And a, a huge degree of hysteria was created following Trump's election. Uh, and, you know, that's had its effect upon, uh, upon attitudes within, um, within uh, society as a whole and, and, of course, within the governing elites. So in regards to this question of, of NATO, what is the sort of perspective that we should understand Russia is having in regards to NATO? NATO um, and its supporters are, are continually say that uh, Russian concerns are invalid because NATO is a defensive organization. This is a this is the line we get over and over again. NATO is a defensive organization. But if you're sitting in Moscow, it doesn't look like that. Uh, the Russians would point to NATO's bombing of Yugoslavia in 1999, uh, to the bombing of Libya uh, in 2011, to NATO's uh, uh, long operation in Afghanistan, and also to operations undertaken by NATO states outside of NATO, uh, such as you know, the United States and Great Britain invading Iraq in, in 2003. And if you, after all that, you, you tell them NATO is a defensive organization, well, they just laugh. I mean, it, it's from their point of view, nothing of the sort. Um, and that doesn't mean that they think NATO is about to invade them or anything, but I think there's a tendency to look at what happened to 
to Libya, what happened to Yugoslavia, what happened to Saddam Hussein and say, well, you know, if, if we don't defend ourselves and if we don't um, have a strong military and, and be very assertive, then they'd have done the same to us by now. It's only because we're you know relatively powerful and we have nuclear weapons, that, but that they haven't. Um, and, you know, we, although we don't necessarily think they're about to invade us tomorrow, you never know what's going to happen down the road and, and we have to be prepared. Um, and we don't like what's happening. And even quite sort of liberal uh, people um, think this way. I, I was reading something recently by Grigory Yavlinsky, who's a um, long-standing liberal opposition uh, politician in Russia, uh, no obvious friend of, of, of Putin and, and the Russian government. And he, he made some statement about NATO enlargement. He said, well, you know, um, they like to say it's it's not a problem, but you know you you could dress a tank up in pink, but it's at the end of the day it's still a tank, <laughs> you know. And um, I think this is the attitude Russians have. And maybe in this regard, you could speak a little bit about the sort of rhetoric coming out of the West and maybe how this is affecting how Russia views things. Yeah. So it, the problem is the rhetoric coming out of the West is is, is often extremely belligerent and ill-informed. And, you know, if you're sitting in Moscow reading what's being said about you uh, in the Western press, you, you must get the impression that, you know, we're, we're start raving bonkers. Um, and, and some of this rhetoric is actually extremely aggressive. I mean, there was um, a piece by uh, Evelyn Farkas, who was uh, a previously, um, you know, a senior official in the Obama administration and an advisor to the Supreme Command of Europe. Um, that was and, the and piece, she, not to interrupt you, but that was the piece entitled... Uh, the U.S. must prepare for war against Russia over Ukraine. Something like that, yeah. So, and in it, she said, essentially, we must give the Russians an ultimatum that either they withdraw from Ukraine or Georgia or, or we'll wage war against them. And if they, if they don't back down, then we must go to war, which is, you know, frankly insane. I mean, you, you, you're, you know, you're threatening the second largest nuclear power in the world with war. I mean, and so if you're sitting in Moscow and you're reading this stuff, not coming from you or me, but from... Uh, a senior official, you 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 must, you know, you don't necessarily think that's state policy, but at the same time, you, you must begin to worry a little bit about the attitudes uh, within Washington. Yeah, and Farkas in particular uh, sort of argues that uh, America making any concessions to Russia over the Ukraine will basically be the end of the international order as we know it, you know, uh, you know, I, I almost feel at times that there's this idea that any form of uh, diplomacy is like a form of appeasement to Putin. Uh, could you comment on that? Well, absolutely. The sort of continual framework we operate within is sort of Munich 1938. And uh, Putin is Hitler. And, you know, any negotiation or um, concession to him is tantamount to uh, a green light for further aggression and not just further aggression by Putin, but, you know, also, you know, by China. So this is an idea which is being bandied around a lot. But if we come to some agreement with Putin, then the Chinese will invade Taiwan. Um, and uh, it was an interesting statement by uh, former prime minister of Australia, Mr. Keating, yesterday, who, who was commenting on something the British foreign secretary, Liz Truss, had said. And Liz Truss had said, you know, if we let Putin get away with it, uh, Putin's working in hock with the Chinese and the Chinese will invade Taiwan the next day or was to that effect. And, and, and Mr. Keating said, you know, Lin Truss's comments were demented. 
And I think he's absolutely right. Uh, but and sadly, this is the sort of rhetoric um, which uh, is, is all too common nowadays. It's, it's, it's a very um, exaggerated uh, sense, first of all, of, of what Russia's ambitions are, this sort of idea that they really want to destroy the entire world order, which is not substantiated in anything you will find in, in any statement by a senior Russia official or in any government document or doctrine. It, 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 there's nothing saying that. Anna. It's purely a sort of fantasy of our, our own imagination, but we still have this very extreme idea of, of, of what the Russians want to do, um, from which follow sort of extremely exaggerated ideas of sort of consequences which might flow from um, actually talking to Russia and, and taking its concerns seriously. That actually is a good lead into a question I had uh, concerning, you know, what exactly are uh, Russia's ambitions? Because I, I remember uh, when I first got in contact with you, I was asking you what you think of uh, certain uh, figures or, or, or Russian intellectuals that are given a lot of, you know, playtime as, as sort of big baddies uh, within the U.S. media. And I, I had mentioned Alexander Dugan, and it's always been my opinion that in the U.S., uh, Dugan's influence is very overstated. Uh, he seems to me to be very marginal within Russia. And I, I think people don't really understand that there's these different forces at work in Russia and some are more relevant than others. And that, you know, that we have a lot of misconceptions maybe about what Russia's actual ambitions are. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if, if you were to redo it, you, you would uh, take away the idea that, you know, Russia needs to engage in, you know, essentially a, a, a massive geopolitical comp competition with the West in order to destroy the dominance of uh, the Anglo-Saxon world. Um, this is not something which uh, Russian officials or Russian state documents ever say. Uh, and, you know, Dugin's influence is, is, is fairly marginal. Uh, if you read uh, something like the official Russian foreign policy document, this they issue one of these every few years. It's called the, um, what was it called? The, the Foreign Policy Statement of the Russian Federation, or words to that effect. Um, the last one, I think, was 2016 or 2018. I can't quite remember. And um, it was very, struck me a lot when I read it, but one word turned up over and over again. I, mean, I actually counted it, and this word turn, turns up 24 times within the foreign policy statement. And the word is stability. Uh, and um, this is a real perennial concern of the Russians. Russians have, uh, you know, suffered from uh, periodic periods of instability in their history. For instance, you know, the, the period of, of the Russian Revolution, the Civil War, um, um, then, of course, Second World War, and then, of course, the, 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 the chaos which followed from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, they value stability really um, very, very, very highly. So these idea that somehow they, they wish to destabilize the West or destabilize the whole world international order, um, I believe is entirely false. In fact, you know, their concern is perpetually that um, the West is um, causing chaos. I mean, this is, um, this is the allegation you will continually hear. I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but this is what they will say. They'll say that you'll see that, that the West is uh, intervening in countries around the world uh, through coloured revolutions and, and other methods. Um, we see this in Ukraine, we saw it in, in, in uh, Syria, Libya, um, in, 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 in other places. And 
it always goes wrong. I, I just and, wanted to add real quickly to that. It, it's interesting you mentioned that because in a way, the U.S. and Russia are marrying each other on that because, I mean, I, I think the U.S., uh, we often get this to you that Russia is causing chaos everywhere. They're trying to undermine the international order. And you're saying that, that Russia feels the same way about uh, the U.S. and NATO countries. Yes, it is actually very interesting that, that the, the accusations of two sides throw at each other are pretty much identical. Uh, so, you know, we will complain about um, the Russians interfering in domestic politics and waging hybrid war and promoting instability, trying to, you know, highlight divisions and all this stuff. But when you, you read what the Russians are saying, but, but they're accusing the West of exactly the same thing. Um, and what we tend to do is say, well, that's ridiculous. You, 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 you're, you're, what you believe is a load of rubbish. So we don't have to pay any attention to your beliefs because your beliefs are you know, objectively wrong. You, know, you, for instance, believe that um, NATO is a threat to you, but we know NATO is not a threat to you. Therefore, we don't have to pay any attention to your belief to the contrary because it's wrong. And I think this is a very silly approach because it doesn't really matter whether your you know, adversary's understanding of the world is right or wrong. What matters is that he believes it, right? And that belief is driving his behavior. So even if, and I'm not saying Russians are entirely wrong, but even if they are objectively entirely wrong, that belief is causing them to act in certain ways we don't like. And therefore, we need to address that belief, regardless of it being right or wrong, right? So, so just saying, you're wrong about NATO being a threat to you, so therefore, we can ignore your concerns, is, is really counterproductive at the end of the day. You, you need to take their concerns into consideration, right or wrong. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because I like the way you've approached it, where, you know, you're saying that, you know, maybe Russia is wrong in some, you know, as you put it, uh, abstract objective way with regards to NATO and its intentions. You know, maybe NATO isn't ever going to attack Russia. That's not going to change Russia's view of it based on uh, some of the rhetoric we've seen and whatnot. Yes, absolutely. And of course, based on not just rhetoric, but, but past behavior. Uh, and it, it's, it's not unreasonable if you're sitting in Moscow and looking at, you know, what happened in Libya uh, and so on, and being a little concerned about uh, about NATO and not, not taking its, its, you know, um, its statements seriously. So, for instance, I mean, you might talk about um, missile defense, which NATO is very, you know, big on placing these sort of missile defense systems in, in Eastern Europe. And NATO says that these are to defend Europe against Iranian nuclear missiles. Well, when that was point that that was suggested to Putin, he he just burst out laughing because you know, these Iranian nuclear missiles don't exist, right? And that, I don't mean that NATO doesn't really believe that they might not exist at some time in the future and that it has to do something about it. And, and, and that these anti-missile defense systems aren't really about Iran. But if you're in Russia, you look at it and go, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why would they be spending you know, all this money to defend themselves against Iranian nuclear missiles. It, it can't be that, it must be about us because it's right next to us, right? It's not, these systems are not being deployed in anywhere close to Iran. They're being deployed in places like the Baltic Sea, right? So, and that's right next to Kaliningrad, which is Russian territory. So 
even if it was meant to be a battle art, it could be used against us too, right? So um, they have some reasons for maybe uh, being a little concerned about what we do and simply dismissing that out of hand is, um, I think, not very constructive. And that, that seems to have been the ongoing policy, right, with uh, the US and its ally states is, you know, well, we're sorry if you're annoyed, Russia, but, you know, you either are going to get with the program or we, we don't really care about your concerns, it seems to be the, the sort of uh, line in the US. Well, certainly how the, the Russians interpret it, right? They, 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 they interpret it as being, you know, um, contemptuous of, of their interests and concerns. Um, and sometimes this is framed in terms of sort of Russophobia, a great, you know, traditional fear or hatred of Russia. Um, but another way of looking at it would be simply, it's not so much a sort of fear or hatred of Russia as a indifference to Russia, uh, that Russia post-Cold War has simply been regarded as not important enough to be worth, you know, um, making concessions to, that really um, NATO is all powerful. It accounts for, I don't know what it is, something like 60% of the world's defense spending. Um, if people, as you said, don't want to get with the gay, well, you know, tough, basically. And this, this has tended to be the attitude um, that, you know, Russia's, Russia's concern, it's Russia's just not important enough really to, to, to listen to it. And, and I think Russia's now sufficiently confident in its own uh, power um, and also confident in changes which are going on in the world system, such as the rise of China. Um, but, you know, they feel that, you know, history maybe is marching in their direction uh, and they're pushing back against it. Um, and, and obviously, we, we, we don't like that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's a, a very good point. It may not even be Russophobia so much as just a generalized indifference towards maybe what Russia wants. Yeah, um, there's a guy called Mark Smith wrote a book called The Russia Anxiety a couple of years ago. And he said, you know, he points to what he says, sort of cycle where this, you know, indifference cycles into um, fear and back to indifference again. So there's perhaps all these things going on, right? But it, it, it's, it's maybe a combination of the two. But, and, and the West maybe can't quite make its mind up sometimes whether Russia is to be feared or, or to, be, to be ignored. So on the one hand, we're told that, you know, Russia's this enormous danger to world security, which is threatening the stability of the entire international system, overthrowing governments, undermining democracy, terrible, terrible. On the other hand, we're told that you know Russia is just a gas station masquerading as a country, uh, and really is is too unimportant to bother with. It's as if almost we we can't make our minds up which it is. So, is there any way that there can be uh, a de-escalation of these tensions? What, what would officials in both the U.S. and Russia have to do to maybe work through this issue? I'm not very confident because neither side is acting in a very de-escalatory way. Uh, the, you know, the Russian demands for, you know, guarantees of its security, which it sort of put forward in this draft treaty are obviously unacceptable to the to, to United States and its, its NATO allies. Um, and one would have to imagine that they knew that when they drafted it. Um, and so I'm not quite sure, you know, what, what, what the end game um, there is apart from some sort of, you know, 
such a frustration which le has led to a feeling that we've got to get this all on paper and, and, and make it clear to them what we want but but um it, it's it's not actually desperately helpful um and similarly the, the the rest of the response is not very helpful either neither side is doing anything which would obviously get us off a ladder and and i it resembles to me what international relations theorists call a, a security dilemma so in the security dilemma the, the problem is that you because you don't trust the other side when it takes measures for its own defense um you interpret them as being potentially aggressive so you then take measures for your defense which are interpreted as a potentially aggressive by the other side causing it to make further measures for its defense and you, you end up in this uh escalatory uh, spiral where the more you do to make yourself more secure the less secure you become and um, it seems to me we're very much caught in that and it's not at all easy um, to get off it uh, the only really way to get off it is for you know unilateral concessions from one side or the other but I but I don't I don't obviously see that coming though I as I said at the start you know I, I don't see Russia invading Ukraine so when, when this invasion of Ukraine fails to happen um, several dumps, months down the road, uh, things may cool down a little bit. The most we can do probably is little baby steps, uh, try and solve small in individual problems. Uh, the key one would be to try and get a, a, a real proper ceasefire in eastern Ukraine uh, so that the, the killing there stops. And once the, the killing there stops, then... Um, these sort of mutual apprehensions of a larger war between Russia and Ukraine will subside, uh, and that will do. That will be highly beneficial. So, I think what we should be doing is looking at a way to get a really proper ceasefire in Donbass, um, so that this very low-level war can, um, you know, finally be finished. And that doesn't mean that you have to have a political settlement of the war. They just need to, you know, have properly stopped shooting each other. Um, and if we can get that as a first baby step, I think we'll have made it some important progress. So then also, I wanted to get into this briefly. What do you think of how the media, uh, different media outlets, I should say, and, and maybe because I, I don't want to treat the media as like this absolute monolith, but uh, some of the media coverage uh, so far, I think you've been critical of it uh, on the irrationality blog. What do you think people should watch out for when reading some of the media reporting right now? Uh, yeah, I'm afraid a lot of our media reporting on matters involving Russia is very poor. I think um, when you're reading it, you, you need to be very careful about um, sources. Where is this information coming from? Um, if it's coming from anonymous officials within the State Department or CIA, then you, you need to sort of be a little cautious um you know or anonymous officials with british intelligence or something you know you, you should be a little cautious similarly if all the information is coming say from ukrainian government sources that doesn't mean it's untrue but you should be aware you're getting one side's you know politically um oriented you know politically interested interpretation of events um and, and you should be aware um of people conflating you know facts and opinion that you know things that you know comments which are uh, appear to be factual or in fact really opinion and, and you should be aware of language too i mean um just the way the way things are phrased um so um you know but let's let's talk about that in particular because i think uh you've written recently about 
you know, pieces that talk about Russian ships, tanks and troops uh, being sent to Ukraine, where you would say, well, what's actually happening is not exactly that. But go on. Yeah. So the Guardian had a big headline, you know, Russian ships and tanks going to Ukraine. Well, actually, when you read the story, the, the, the tanks are going to Belarus and the ships are going to the Mediterranean. <laughs> They're not going to Ukraine. Now, they might be going to somewhere closer to Ukraine than when they were originally, and that might be significant, but it's not to Ukraine. Um, and there's many other sort of little ways in which bias uh, slips through, you know, use of, um, you know, passive and active voices and, and so on, depending on whether you want to give agency or deprive agency uh, from people. So, um, you know, uh, Russia will have, you know, Russia killed someone, um, whereas someone died. Okay, it, it, it's, it, it, it's the same story and they're both true, but maybe, but one assigns blame and, 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 and one doesn't. Um, you should also be aware also that, that um, sometimes uh, what passes as fact is just fo is, is false. There, there is some false information being provided and, and, and I, um, I've got a couple of pieces coming out um, in the next few days discussing, for instance, a new document produced by the US State Department denouncing Russian um, disinformation, uh, which itself is full of disinformation. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the document uh, claims that um, the Russians uh, falsely said that a Ukrainian drone had killed a boy in Donbass. Um, in fact, when you look at the sources, the, the US, Department, US State Department sites, the Russian media reported that the locals had claimed that. Furthermore, the US State Department claims that the OSC monitors had reported that the boy was not killed by a drone. But when you link to the document in the US State Department report, it says nothing of the sort. The OSCE merely reported that the boy had died of shrapnel and blast wounds, which is actually quite compatible with a, a, a drone strike. So um, whoever is writing this document, uh, I wouldn't say you know, deliberately falsified uh, the sources, but actually certainly misrepresented what they said. Uh, and what is written down in the report is just plain wrong. So you often actually, you know, you, you have to be aware that um, there are strong political agendas driving a lot of the reporting, right? Which means a lot of what appears to be, you know, objective reporting is in fact, you know, driven by, you know, high, highly politically charged. And also, I think we should talk about this is, uh the Ukraine in relation to all this, because you've written about, um, you know, the issue with labeling any uh, Ukrainian politician who happens to get, disagree with Ukrainian nationalist uh, sort of agendas uh, as being pro-Russian. Maybe we should retire that term. So maybe you could discuss that a little bit. Yes, I mean, this is um, kind of ridiculous language, which is often used. So um, if you go back to Russiagate, for instance, and, and we had... Um, you know, all these accusations made against Paul Manafort, you know, and it was said that Paul Manafort was working for like these pro-Russian oligarchs and pro-Russian, you know, President Yanukovych. Um, no one in Moscow thought Yanukovych was pro-Russian. <laughs> he wasn't as anti-Russian as, 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 you know, some other people. But, uh, you know, if you speak to someone in Moscow, I'll just tell you that, you know, Yanukovych was pro-Yanukovych. There was nothing pro-Russian about him at all. Um, and, you know, but we, we, we dump these, you know, pro-Russian label on, on people, um, 
so now this is being put on this guy who who the Brits say is Moscow's man um, for a coup in Ukraine, and he's a pro-Russian, you know, politician. Uh, but he's actually sanctioned by the Russian government, and the Russian government has seized his his father's assets. So he's not he's not pro-Russian at all. Uh, so this is. This is kind of silly labeling which takes place, but it, it, it helped. It, it's a way of blackening the names of certain people by associating, you know, with the evil Russia and so on. Um, uh, um, but people don't question it. They just sort of accept it as, as true because they don't really know any better. And um, half the battle in, you know, the information war is a question of framing. If you can frame the discussion in a certain way, then you win. And, and um, I'm, you know, for all the complaints which are made about, you know, Russian information war and, and all the rest of it, like the, the Russians have clearly lost this one in, in the West. The, the framing of all issues to do, say, Russia and Ukraine, I think have been quite effectively framed by, by um, Russia's opponents in, um, in, in ways which uh, essentially uh, ensure that the majority of people reading reports will um, interpret things in a negative light. What is the biggest issue uh, or biggest point that you think a lot of uh, maybe people here in the US or Canada uh, or just in general in the West may be missing when it comes to uh, this conflict between the Ukraine and, and Russia? Well, I'd say what they're missing is, is the fact that, uh, you know, the conflict in Ukraine is, is partially an international one, but it's only partially an international one. It is also um, very much an internal one. And the reason, you know, there is a war in Donbass is, is not just because of, you know, Russian aggression. It's because of a substantial part of the population there considered the um, Maidan coup to be illegitimate and considered the government which came to power in 2014 to, to be illegitimate. And rose up against it, um, and the Ukrainian government then, you know, responded extremely violently in ways which, if, if the Russian government did, we, we would condemn outright. Um, so, you know, I think what um, people are missing is the fact that this, you know, there is responsibility for this on on more than one side. It's just painted as like Russian aggression, Russian aggression. I'm not saying there isn't any Russian aggression, but it's not the whole story. Uh, but there's a lot more to this, and there is there is you know guilt and responsibility uh, on the other side too, and this can't be resolved unless the you know the grievances which caused this you know counter revolution in in Donbass are in some way um, addressed. But people are unwilling to do that. So would you say there's there's maybe grievances to be had by multiple parties in all of this, whether it's the Ukraine or Russia? Yes, I mean, I, I, lots of people have good reason to be aggrieved. You know, the, the Ukrainian government and, and its supporters have, have good reasons to be aggrieved. I mean, if the, the fact that, you know, Russia took part of Ukrainian territory and has supported uh, a rebellion in, in Donbass is clearly, uh, um, you know, aggressive and, and, and there's good reason to, to be, to be grieve, aggrieved about that. But, but similarly, the... Um, you know, people who live in, in Donbass and who are subjected to 
of a shelling of a Ukrainian army um, and who have been killed in, in, in quite large numbers by the Ukrainian army, um, they have a good reasons to be uh, aggrieved too. Um, and the problem is that neither side really is ready to take the other's uh, grievances seriously. Uh, final thought here. I feel like more and more whenever we have discussions like these, uh, you know, we referenced earlier uh, a lot of stuff with with conspiracy theories surrounding Russia. I feel like uh, even being critical of U.S. policy in regards to all of this or saying, hey, this is the Russian perspective, I feel like more and more uh, that gets written off as, well, that, that's a Kremlin uh, talking point. Uh, I've actually been told, you know, oh, well, you, you can't say that uh, Russia has uh, its own criticisms of NATO because that, that's a Kremlin talking point. Do you ever think we'll get past this sort of, I would say, hindering to diplomacy uh, sort of approach to talking about the issues where any sort of um, counterpoint is written off as some kind of um, info war propaganda? Uh, you're absolutely right about this problem. And, and unfortunately, you know, with all the hysteria about Russian disinformation campaigns and influence operations and all the rest of it, we've actually you know, funded and uh, enabled a, a big uh, sort of industry of government institutions, think tanks, sort of private entrepreneurs who, who devoted themselves to this fight against disinformation. Um, but these people are, are very biased on the whole. And, and, and what they do is they use their position to um, denounce any deviation from the most extreme position as being um, part and parcel of, of some centralized conspiracy coming out of the Kremlin. So that if you express, you know, any nuance, not, not even like a, a pro-Russian position, but, you know, sort of a nuance about um, or, or some doubts about the most extreme pro-Western position, then you're a Kremlin agent. Uh, and you know you're taking orders from personally from Putin, who's probably stuffing your pockets full of full of you know banknotes or something. In, in the meantime, and um, the effect of this is to try and, and silence any alternative viewpoints um, and to uh, discredit anyone who, who disagrees with uh, you know really the, the most extreme viewpoint. Um, are we going to get beyond it? As you ask, I think it's difficult precisely because as part of this, you know, struggle against hybrid war, disinformation and all the rest of it, you know, it's been institutionalized, right? So, you know, think tanks are being funded to research and expose this stuff and government institutions have been created to fight disinformation uh, and so on and so forth. So, so there is a whole industry has been, has been created and is being, you know, given money precisely to do this. Um, uh, and therefore, you know, there's a whole load of people with a strong interest in continuing to blacken people's names uh, in this way. Um, and um, I don't see it stopping any anytime soon, unfortunately. But I, I guess to end it on a, I, I don't know if this would, this would be the most positive note, but I guess you are of the opinion, uh, at least right now, and this is something I share, is that I, I don't think uh, Russia is going to invade the Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. So as I said, I, I, I hope that, you know, when this, when this invasion fails to happen, <laughs> I mean, we, it's, it's been imminent for 80 days now. Uh, 
But the latest news coming out of Washington is they're saying it's not imminent. <laughs> so um, the State Department supposedly is saying we see no signs of an imminent attack. Um, so, you know, when it fails to happen, things may calm down a little bit. Um, the, the danger, of course, is, is that in the meantime, something else will have happened. So uh, the it's clear that the United States is going to reject all the demands the Russians made in their draft document, uh, draft treaty. Russia has said it will respond in some way which the United States will not like. Now, I don't think that's going to be invasion, but it means something, right? Um, so um, we'll have to wait and see what, what that's going to be. I mentioned, by the way, the, uh, the Havana syndrome a fair earlier, do you think there's a parallels between, you know, the, I, I would say mass hysteria around the Havana syndrome and some of the jumping to say, uh, they're, they're definitely going to invade. They're definitely going to invade. It seems like we're seeing a lot of incidents lately where uh, predictions or theories are turning out not to be true. You know, uh, I think, you know, after that CIA report came out about the Havana syndrome saying, you know, it doesn't look like this is, uh, foreign agencies doing this, you know, maybe that has died down a little, but it, it seems like time and time again, we're jumping the gun in what we think is happening with regards to international relations. Yes, that, that's very true. Uh, but when one dies down, another one comes along. So this isn't the first invasion scare, for instance. So there was an invasion scare last spring. And then before that, uh, there was an invasion scare when the Russians and Belarusians had um, a series of military exercises called the Zarpad exercises. And we were told, uh, this was uh, a few years back, we were told that, you know, Russia was about to invade Poland. Um, of course, that didn't happen. Um, and there have been many others of these sort of, you know, there was the whole Russia gate thing. And for years, we were told Trump was a, a Russian agent. And of course, that turned out. I, I always to... found the, uh, the idea that Trump was being puppeteered by Putin very strange, because my understanding was that, um, some of the treaty negotiations between uh, Trump and Putin, I think it was the, the START treaties, did not go uh, as well as maybe Russia would have wanted. No, I, you're, they didn't. And, and of course, it, it was always a rather ridiculous theory. Uh, unfortunately, there is no accountability for all the people who get these wrong. So all, all, all the people who, who, who uh, promoted Russiagate, you know, they're still there. They still have their jobs. You know, they've got their Pulitzer Prizes or, <laughs> and uh, they're happy. Um, the people who said that, you know, Havana syndrome is the Russians, they're, they're carrying on. The people who have predicted that Russia will invade Ukraine will not suffer when Russia doesn't. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I, I promise this will be the last thing I say. I know I've kept you longer. But, you know, I said that there does need to be accountability to someone recently. And so they said to me, uh, well, what do you want to do? Do you just want to fire people when they're wrong about something? And I'm like, well, that's not really what I'm saying. I'm saying if you get things wrong consistently, there has to be accountability, you know, uh, uh, fool me once, you know, uh, that, that whole deal. So, you know, I, I yeah. think there does need to be accountability. What well, one has to wonder why, um, you know, um, the Max Boots and the Thomas Friedmans and, and, and um, all these other guys are, are still writing for major newspapers. When, when I ask that about John Bolton every day. <laughs> yeah, John Bolton, like who's been so consistently wrong on everything. You know, how does he still get getting hired and given decent jobs and, and, and all the rest? It, it, it's, it's a very strange thing. I mean, you don't have to uh, 
criminally prosecute people for being wrong or fire them or, or whatever, but you don't have to keep rehiring them and giving them new jobs and, 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 uh, and um, new contracts and, uh, and all the rest of it. And perhaps you should, well, you know, perhaps you, you can have, let them write the odd op-ed, but, but how about inviting some other people on too, who have the people who were right I mean, that's one way of doing it. You know, the guys who said there's no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, why, why don't you have them on? Why, why does Scott Ritter have to write for RT? Why don't you say, okay, he got it right. Let's have him on the New York Times. I mean, wouldn't that, that make a little bit more sense? Well, hey, uh, Paul Robinson, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax News. We'll have to have you back on the show again to talk about some of your, your books. I was really interested in the uh, Russian conservatism book, and I understand you have a few more books uh, coming down the pike. So uh, maybe you could tell my listeners how they can keep up with your work. Yes. So um, I write a blog. It's called Irrationality. So it's at irrationality.wordpress.com. Um, I also have a Telegram channel and uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter um, and uh, on Facebook. So you can follow me there and I always provide on, on the social media the links to, to my blogs. And, and I, I I write for other media outlets too. Um, so um but if you, if you follow the blog and, and, and uh, Twitter or Facebook or, or Telegram, then you'll, you'll get links to all my stuff. Thank you again, Paul Robinson. Okay, thank you for having me on the show. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paul Robinson, as well as my discussions with Barry Meyer and Sally Denton. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Added some new bonus content recently for $5 tier and above supporters. Also, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, the War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, and Matthew Ho. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallaxes, please consider supporting me again at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallax views $10 tier and above gets you a producer's credit shout out and with that being said until next time you've been listening to parallax views with parallax views to parallax views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.